1: and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. With me today is a gentleman who never gets into locker room bust-ups and always does his best to keep Mikel Arteta from yelling at him. It's Graham Ruthven. Hello, Graham.
2: Hello, Taylor. How are you? I I, I only I keep the the locker room bust-ups quiet, so you know, no it never gets leaked out. That's the difference um between <laughs> me and the, I mean and and people at Chelsea Chelsea players. You just don't hear about
1: <laughs> mine. <laughs> That's right. Uh we, we do try to keep those under wraps when Graham and Ryan get into it in the in the post weekend yeah. review kerfuffle that we always have uh Ryan is is uh away he's on vacation i think he's traveling somewhere across or back to Across the United States or back to his home. But either way, he is not with us today. Instead, it's myself and Mr. Graham Ruffin talking about all the games from this past weekend. We've got a little bit of Bundesliga. We've got a little bit of French League. Ligue 1. Uh, I always overpronounce it. But we're going to start with the Premier League and the aforementioned Chelsea, who lost 2-5 uh, to five to West Brom. Not a result I saw coming. Graham, you were the one who uh, messaged me to say, like, maybe we should probably cover this one. Yeah. Uh, how actively were you watching this and how surprised uh, by this result were you?
2: Oh, uh, yeah. This is a match that proved once and for all that I know nothing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what on earth was this? Um... I know, I know that. I mean, everyone's obviously pinpointed the the red card to to, to Silva as a bit of a turning point. But even watching the first the, the the early exchanges of this match, I felt like there was something not quite right about this Chelsea team. And mm-hmm. even after they go down to ten men, you look at the the goal for I think it's Pereira's first one, where the the, the long ball down the down the field from Sam Johnson. There's no way ten a ten men a ten man team should. Concede that goal, so I don't know how I don't know how that can be in any way attributed to the to the red card. So yeah, this was truly truly bizarre. As, as much as it was a, a a disastrous performance by Chelsea, I also think it should be mentioned that every West Brom goal seemed to be incredible. <laughs> I don't where have yeah. they been hiding this? Where have they been hiding this sort of composure in front of goal? I mean, the second goal for Pereira, where he steadies himself before just passing it into the The bottom corner, even uh, Callum Robinson, the, the fifth goal where he kind of chips a finish over the goalkeeper. They're in the bottom three.
1: I mean, I guess as the commentator said, like vaguely wearing the colors of Brazil apparently makes you (laughs) counterattack and uh, score goals with ruthless efficiency the way Brazil do. But I'm with you as well that it felt like a strange game from Chelsea. I compare it to, I'll go the video game route and say there are those times in like FIFA career mode when the computer just decides like you're not winning this game. Like (laughs) you've you've won enough, you've scored enough goals, you're losing this game. And that's sort of how it felt because there were so many errant passes from Chelsea. I think Tuchel... I can't remember if this was publicly or in the locker room that then leaked. He was pretty uh, critical of Jorginho for some of his passing, and there was definitely some errant passing leading to some of the goals. I'm with you that it didn't seem like Chelsea were sort of in the right mindset. Uh, it always felt like there were vulnerabilities there. Was there anything in particular that stood out to you from the way they were playing that maybe was a red flag early on or a red flag just as the goals started coming in?
2: Well, the, the partnership of, of Thiago Silva and, uh, and Zuma. Um, mm-hmm. I know I know Silva uh, doesn't last long on, on the pitch, but I, I think I, I read somewhere, I heard somewhere that, that Chelsea have lost five of the, the six games that these two players have, have started together. So it's a little bit of, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's even, you, it, you could argue it's even worse in terms of chemistry than like a Lindelof-Maguire situation where there's just something about these two players that, it doesn't. It doesn't work between them, shall we say, as as a partnership. And 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 I know, I know there's been a lot of focus on the Rudiger um, omission to 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 uh, you know leave him out of the the starting lineup, given that he has been such a, a key figure for Chelsea since uh, Tuchel came in. I, I do have a little bit of sympathy in that these these three game international breaks are forcing managers into really difficult decisions once they once they uh they come back because Rüdiger played all three games for for Germany. Tuchel's clearly assessed that he's maybe not ready to to play another game in a, a fourth game in you know less than two weeks. So I do have some sympathy and that I could see the justification why he made this decision. But yeah, I think it became pretty uh, clear early on there was a there was a chance um I actually can't remember who who actually it might be uh, Dianeo that that took the shot but there was a, there was a chance before the the sending off for West Brom and for a team that have have given up so many, given up so few opportunities like Chelsea have under Tuchel I think that was a little bit of a of a red flag and and um I don't think we'll be seeing this this back three formation from from Chelsea uh, very often between
1: now and the end of the season. It was also strange to me that it was Rudiger and Keppa who reportedly got into the altercation right? That's right, yeah, and and I read that
2: Keppa was shouting things from the from the sidelines or from the stand. I mean, if there's a player at Chelsea who should be keeping his head yeah. down, stay low, <laughs>
1: Keppa. <laughs> I just, I read that as well, and I was very confused about how two two gentlemen sitting on the bench managed to get into a scrap. But then also, maybe I have this like completely wrong because I'll talk later on about a player that I completely misjudged for his physicality, but. If I'm Keppa, I don't think I'm squaring up to Rudiger. I feel like I'm not <laughs> going to win that one. He he seems like he's got some size and some weight on me. Uh, maybe Keppa should like uh ha- like quietly. He should go about like trash talking quietly, is I guess what I'm saying. Yeah,
2: and and Rudiger's got a little bit of a reputation. Uh, remember, he was. Mm-hmm. seemingly the the one of the the figures that was uh allegedly undermining Frank
1: Lampard um so yeah Keppa <laughs> stay out of that one man <laughs> uh, in terms of staying out of it i want to i want to ask you as well as about how far into this we should look when it comes to Chelsea because They've had the runner to Tuchel. They've been so impressive that when they lose, I think there is always, and I do this a lot, I think on the show, there's there's an inclination to be like, okay, what did they get wrong? Let's break it down. Like, is this a bad sign? Did West Brom figure out how to beat Chelsea? And I don't want to be too reactionary. I don't want to be too over the top are there things you think that stood out in a more negative way about this Chelsea performance? Or do you think it was just that eh, this is what happens when you have a bunch of, of success in a row, you come back from international break, maybe you're just not sharp, maybe you're not up for it. Did you see things that you think could be problematic going forward? Or do you think we can at least take some like comfort in saying, eh, it was maybe just a one-off performance, let's see what happens next?
2: I think, I think to be honest, the the reaction and the reports that have come after this game have probably been one of the most concerning aspects of, of of this result for Chelsea and, I, and I'm split on it a little bit because I think that in uh, obviously we've just referenced the the kind of um scuffle between rudiger and, and Kepa. there was reportedly another kind of Frank exchange between James and and uh, Reece James and uh, as and I think I think a lot of there's probably a lot more of that that goes on in a training ground a football club training ground than is reported but the fact that it's coming out at this time I think is the troublesome thing. This this group of Chelsea players, uh, there's there's been maybe a little bit too much smoke for there to be no fire in terms of mm-hmm. the the attitude and some of the characters in that group. And you throw Tuchel in there, who of course is his last two cl- clubs at, at Dortmund and at PSG. He's he's left um, amid suggestions of division in in, in the camp. Mm-hmm. So this is this is really an early test for Tuchel at, at, at Chelsea. And obviously they've got the Chelsea the Champions League game against uh, Porto. And I think that'll be... I, I didn't expect that game to be... I mean, obviously a Champions League quarterfinal is always important, but I didn't expect that game to be quite so important in terms of what it could say for Tuchel as Chelsea manager, as now seems to be the case. But I, I, I just think that the way that, that performance went where it didn't feel like there was much fight, I'm always wary of... Mentioning fight and an analysis of a game, but it, it, I suppose, it is in this sort of situation. It is when you're down to ten men. It is an, it is an important uh, quality to have. I didn't see that in the performance, and as I say, a lot of the reports coming out of the club are a little bit worrisome. If if I was a Chelsea fan, so the the reaction now is really
1: important um, after after this performance and and result. I think that's all really, really well said because. From what I have heard of Thomas Tuchel, like uh, I think Andy Brassel was making the argument that you can't judge him by right now. You have to judge him by when. There is a downturn in form when things don't work as well and then how he responds because he's so detail-oriented that he wants players doing this specific thing in this specific moment and this specific thing in that specific moment. And I think that does, in my mind, at least explain a little bit of some of that uh, infighting, some of the Reese James and Espalicueta, like them being on the same side operating in a same sort of area of the field and you would expect needing to combine in certain ways if those little details break down, you can then see how there would be like, no, that's not my responsibility. That's your responsibility. No, you're supposed to do this. And that I, as I understand it is where Tuchel is going to need to elevate his game a little bit more when it comes to the managerial side of how do you deal with some of that infighting? How do you deal with some of that, Nitpicking is too strong a word, but it's or like too like, I don't know, harsh of an expression. But basically just the idea of if you are such a detail-oriented manager and your squad reflects that, when they start to then argue about those details and fight about those details, how do you pull back? How do you get them out of that infighting? That doesn't necessarily seem to be his strongest suit historically, so how he amends that this time, I think he'll be able to do because he has so much talent and obviously has uh A bit of a mandate going into Chelsea but I it does I'm with you some of the disconnect some of the frustration I was surprised by and then to hear the reaction as publicly public as it was whereas you and Ryan keep it in the locker room which I do appreciate (laughs) uh I think that is definitely disconcerting for Americans this result was obviously not wonderful in terms of Christian Pulisic getting injured did you understand what happened in the moment because I did not
2: not really. No, I I mean did I miss that there wasn't any kind of hint of an injury at the end? No. Did I miss that? No, there wasn't anything. So from to come out at the start of the second half and then I saw a video of him kind of I wouldn't even call mm-hmm. it a sprint but a, a a mid-pace jog out onto the pitch where he I, I mean I'd be surprised if he's pulled something there. So that suggests to me that yeah. there, that he knew there was something up at half time and then and then he's obviously decided he can't continue but Again, I, I, the way that that it was almost as if Tuchel didn't know—is that the, the the impression that yeah. you got as well? I mean, he he walks back to the tunnel, and Tuchel seems to have been caught by caught off guard, caught by surprise at the fact that Tuchel, Ted Pulisic
1: is is coming off. It was a really mm-hmm. bizarre episode. I think the commentators on my feed didn't even notice it until like maybe a couple of minutes in when when they're like oh and Mason Mount on the ball Mason Mount by the way came on for Christian Pulisic and it was like oh <laughs> that's that's good stuff guys uh and I th- and I think I read that uh uh Mount was originally coming on for Timo Werner and that would have been the halftime change and then Pulisic gets the injury so Mount comes on for Pulisic instead so we see even then Thomas Tuchel trying to change things up and then maybe his hand being forced by the injury but no I didn't see anything in the first half that gave any indication that he was dealing with that sometimes maybe it's just that little bit of discomfort you can feel it tightening up and you have to have the kind of presence of mind to think this is going to get worse. I'm just going to call it yeah. now. But I also especially got the impression his, that Thomas especially Tuchel with his,
2: that, especially with Pulisic's track
1: record, yeah. you could forgive
2: him for being a little bit cautious. But um, yeah, I just I don't get a. I think I might have said this before in the podcast. I just don't get a good feeling with Pulisic and 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 Tuchel together at, at, at Chelsea, and the relationship is a really strange one because I think mm-hmm. Pulisic was given his. He, he he was given his uh
1: you know his break by Tuchel at, at, at Dormund, wasn't he? Uh I can never remember if it was like Klopp who brought him in and then Tuchel was the one who like really believed yeah. in him. But either way they had a strong relationship. Yeah either, either way it worked for at least know, a while. Yeah.
2: Pulisic was the, the you know under, it was Tuchel under Tuchel that Pulisic really became a you yeah. know, a bit of a superstar. So it's 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 peculiar to me that their relationship doesn't seem to be that strong. And and I think I've said before in the podcast that I think the front three of Werner Havertz through the centre and Ziyech mm-hmm. seems to be the front three that started against uh, Atletico Madrid in the Champions League. That seems to me to be the, the the best balanced front three and obviously that then leaves Pulisic out of out of the, the picture. So, uh, yeah. It's it's based on the hunch maybe more than anything else and, mm-hmm. and obviously his performances since Tuchel has come in haven't been that great. He's not had that much game time. I mean, this was this only maybe his second Premier League start I think under Tuchel? Something like that, yeah. Um,
1: but yeah, I just, I don't get a good feeling about it. And to your point about, like, the havertz werner Zayek combination, uh, in the first half, Chelsea do have another, like, uh, when they're already 1-0 up, I believe, they have another chance to break, and Zayek tries to play in Christian Pulisic, but the angle is, like, more, like, acute or obtuse. I forget which one it is. I'm not good at math. Uh, But either way, (laughs) it's basically at a sharper angle than Pulisic wanted it, and you see him kind of throw his hands up in frustration. And maybe, again, maybe this is too harsh, but in that moment, I thought, like, if that's Havertz, is he making a different run? And is that the ball that Ziyech is playing? Like, do you have to have those reps and that familiarity as opposed to just putting in world-class players and hoping they figure it out? Because I just, I didn't see that sharpness, that connectivity that we've seen from Chelsea. And I think that went a long way towards letting West Brom in. I also think that they sort of got themselves into a lot of trouble, which is again, maybe a harsh way to phrase it. But anytime that you are up one nil, in the 45th minute as halftime is approaching and then four minutes later you're down two to one you come out of <laughs> halftime and you have this strange injury out of nowhere and you have to make another change and now you burn through two subs you're already a man down like it, it, it just seemed like Chelsea sort of put themselves in the worst possible position to come out and try to fight back and I think West Brom were more than happy for them to do that and more than happy to pounce on all of those individual mistakes
2: yeah I, I do think West Brom deserve uh and des- deserve a lot of Credit mm-hmm. for recognizing the opportunity that was here after after the red card. Um, obviously, the Ivanovic comes on for O'Shea, and, and after 25 mm-hmm. minutes before the first goal, then Ivanovic pulls up and needs to come off again. So, for West Brom's from West Brom's perspective, that's not an ideal situation to be in, having to use two substitutions before. Half time and it would have been it would have been easy for Allardyce to make a like for like um, change by keeping the back five and putting on another defensive minded player. But he, at that point, he recognises, as I say, the opportunity that that his team have got, and he puts on Callum Robinson, Robinson, and shifts shifts to a back four. Um, and at that point, with the four four two, they're they're just playing higher up the pitch. They're just a lot more attack minded, and, and that is not something you would necessarily um naturally associate with Allardyce is that is that um as i say that conviction to really go for for three points when it would have been understandable if he'd thought well there's a point here up for grabs for for, for us today um and yeah i just thought that deserves a, a bit of credit for Allardyce who doesn't always get the credit he deserves but this uh, this was a, a brilliant uh, free flowing attacking performance and earlier in the season it's it's diff, it's uh, difficult to uh, remember but earlier in the season that was actually one of the things West Brom had going for them under Slav and Bilic so they still have those players and this was one of the the performances that that, that reminded us of that
1: we uh, we are going to do a sort of uh team of the week later on Graham has one I have one we'll see how much overlap there is but were there any particular West Brom players you wanted to spotlight now um i guess uh, i mean the obvious one is
2: matas Pereira, who uh, mm. I, I, there's, uh, I think he was linked. Was he? He was linked with Manchester United not so long ago, wasn't he? I, I remember I seeing. I like everybody gets linked with him at some <laughs> point. So yeah, why not? Sure. <laughs> yeah, one of the hundreds of players <laughs> every transfer window they get linked with with Manchester United. Um, yeah, he was. He was brilliant. I, I noticed that his who scored uh, rating was a perfect ten, which I'm not sure I've seen that this season. Uh, two goals, two assists. I thought um, Ainsley Maitland-Niles was 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 pretty decent, and and we're gonna, obviously going to talk about Arsenal and, and Liverpool later. Contrast his performance with uh, Danny Ceballos yeah. <laughs> in the centre of midfield, and also oh, uh, a game that we won't talk about, but Joe Willock uh, coming on and scoring for 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 Newcastle against Spurs. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Arsenal have better options in that position than they they realise, <laughs> and maybe don't need to loan from another club. Um, so yeah, I thought he was good, um, and yeah, I, I felt Furlong on the right side was 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 good as well. Dianya obviously with with the goal deserves mm-hmm. a mention. Callum Robinson uh, coming off the bench was 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 brilliant. Um, so yeah, a number of standout performances. Sam Johnson as well, not just with the saves that he made, but with some of his distribution as well. Um, yeah, the, so. the first goal especially, as you said.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, so number of standout performance for them. Anytime you get a goalkeeper with an assist, it's always a fun game. Anytime you have five goals uh, against Chelsea uh, as a neutral, that's always enjoyable. And anytime the commentator at 4-1 says this feels like it's going to be 5-2, to and then it is, I also appreciated <laughs> that. So on the whole, a, a pretty entertaining game. Anything else uh, to talk about from Chelsea 2, West Brown 5? Just
2: uh, some of the, the nonsense from Joe Cole as a pundit over here on British TV
1: after Ooh, the game. I didn't hear this.
2: So his, his, his comment was, and this is a direct quote, this is a lesson to Tuchel. This isn't the Bundesliga. This isn't League 1. This is the Premier League. Ah, yes, the Bundesliga, that famously predictable league where big <laughs> clubs like Schalke and Borussia Dortmund <laughs> and Hertha Berlin and Gladbach, they all have it their own way and they never lose any games. Uh, I, I just have no time for that sort of narrative that the only true football is Premier League football. But there's a lot of it that happens over here.
1: Also, hasn't Thomas Tuchel been coaching a decent amount of Premier League football of late? Like, that seems like a thing he wrote expecting them to lose their first game. And when they didn't, he just kept that draft until eventually (laughs) they did. And now he's gone with it after Thomas Tuchel had this ridiculous winning streak and Chelsea weren't conceding goals. Feels a little bit strange to then be like, welcome to the Premier League, guy who's been here for a while and had a lot of success so far.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, before now, Chelsea had conceded like one goal in 14 games. Yeah,
1: exactly.
2: (laughs) I think his win percentage or his points per game is higher at Chelsea than it has been at Dortmund and PSG. (laughs) So,
1: not sure that argument holds much water. We should should just flip it around and make it like, welcome to the Premier League, Thomas Tuchel. You're having a much easier time here than you did anywhere else.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Perfect. All right, well, credit to Joe Cole, who last I saw was... Uh, trying to deal as best he could with the Tampa Heat. That was always a fun thing to watch when he was playing uh, in USL for the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Now saying nonsense uh, for Premier League analysis. I do appreciate that. We'll be back with more nonsense of our own in just a moment. But first, a word from today's sponsors.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to com slash courtside to learn more.
1: We are back and we're going to talk about a sad one for Arsenal fans, a much happier one for Liverpool fans. Arsenal nil, Liverpool 3. Uh, this This seemed like a game that Uh, was kind of being built at least in my world at least in my mind as Liverpool having a really hard time dealing with sort of injuries and and uh, lineup rotations Uh, is this going to be the time when Arteta finally figures it out we see Arsenal kind of move to that next level that was my understanding of it that is no longer my understanding of it because (laughs) instead this felt like Liverpool being kept at bay for as long as possible and eventually finding a way through they're back they're back
2: (laughs) maybe (laughs) <laughs> maybe yeah. yeah they might finish fifth um th- this was <laughs> this 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 was a, this was undoubtedly much better from liverpool wasn't it um yes. it's particularly after jota comes off the bench and mm-hmm. i think his return from injury look this season has been defined almost entirely um by injuries for Liverpool, the obvious one being to to Virgil van Dijk, who's missed basically the whole season. But I I think that the fact that Jota has been missing for so long has flown under the radar a little bit um, because one of the... Uh, the most significant thing's about his signing was he felt like even before this season started and before this season went the way that it has for Liverpool there was a discussion about the need to evolve for, for Klopp to evolve his team and i felt like Jota was the route to 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 evolve in the team he he a lot of people said he was the replacement for Roberto Firmino i think more accurately he was a way to shift Liverpool in, into a front four with a 4231 um, he's a different sort of centre-forward. He's not as refined as the other um, front three that, that Liverpool have, but I've been impressed by just how sharp his eye for goal is and how focused he is on just getting the ball in the back of the net. He's so much better in the air for Liverpool than I, than I thought he was for Wolves. Um, that seems to be something that he's improved a lot. and. Yeah, this this was a a sign for me that if they can keep Jota fit, I just have a suspicion Liverpool will sneak that fourth-place position. I think that's how significant I
1: think he is as a player for Liverpool now. I think he could be the difference for them. Yeah, his brace would agree with you. When you say he's not as refined, do you just mean that he doesn't have that sort of the sharpness that comes with playing in a Klopp system for multiple seasons? Um...
2: Perhaps, but I, I I was more meaning just in terms of his, I guess, technical ability. Like I, I'm thinking most most um, notably with Mohamed Salah, who's obviously very smooth and synchronized in everything that he does. And I guess Firmino is a similar sort of uh, technical ability. I, I think Jota isn't quite at that level, um, but he is a finisher. And and he is a dribbler. Like I, I think that's I I thought when Liverpool signed him that he would that was the the role that he'd play for them would be um, as a bit of a dribbler. But he he's so much more of a finisher, as I say. And it it just feels like everything he does is geared towards putting the ball in the back of the net. I think he scored two or three goals for Portugal as well when he uh, uh, with his head as well. I think he's he's on a run of headed goals. Um, and I just think he gives, there's been a lot of talk about a striker that gives Liverpool a different dimension. And I think he is that that, that striker. And he's maybe not what we envisaged. He's not Haaland. He's not Timo Werner, who was obviously linked to Liverpool
1: strongly before he went to Chelsea. But I think he is the kind of player that they need. So we already talked about Christian Pulisic coming off at halftime for Chelsea. And I will admit that as an American, when I'm watching a team that I I don't really have much of a rooting interest in, aside from them fielding an American, when that substitution happens, I think my enthusiasm will always dip a little bit, unless the game's very good. Even when Tyler Adams came out against Leipzig, I was still pretty interested in that one. For you in this game, when Jota comes on, uh, it seems like maybe he's going to come on for James Milner. Maybe he's going to go up top. Instead, he comes on for technically Andy Robertson and then James Milner. Hamas Milner goes to left back, uh, Jota more of an attacker in midfield slash getting into the attack, as you said, and sort of a front four. What does that do for you, a Scottish person watching Liverpool, who I'm gonna assume <laughs> that you don't have as much of a rooting interest in? Like, do you have that equal sort of like oh, I'm sad now that there's no Scottish people on the field. I um, guess there's still oh no, there wasn't at that point, because Tioli oh, had yeah, already come name, off as well. Yeah, so that's that's yeah. the point
2: I'm gonna make was this was obviously, from a Scottish perspective, uh, our two yes. uh, world-class left-backs uh, facing off against each other. I mean, to answer your question, not not really. I'm, I mean, mm-hmm. I do obviously want the best for the Scottish national team. And at the moment, it's particularly uh, that feeling is particularly acute given that we have a major tournament on the horizon. Um, but I'm not the most patriotic Scot. Like when Scotland were playing the Faroe Islands and were 3-0 up, the other night on Wednesday night, I did watch the England Poland game for like ten Ooh. minutes, <laughs> which uh, I'm hope I hope no one uh, from Scotland is listening to this. Uh, yeah, do you um, know what happens
1: when you do that, Graham? Guarantor, he gets hurt. That's what happens.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. but but that's that that's what uh, the point I was going to come around to was um, not so much with Robertson because actually Robertson uh-huh. he is a great player, but he's never actually shown it. Uh, not never, that's a bit harsh, but he rarely shows it for Scotland. His performances are often questioned. He seems to struggle with having inferior players around him than he than he does at Liverpool. Kieran Tierney has been Scotland's best player in the last three games they have played. And I think I wrote a piece on how, for Scotland, Tierney has surpassed Robertson as, as the, the team's best player. So to see him come off with a knee injury uh, after, I think, uh, well, was it was at halftime, wasn't it? Or just after halftime, um, was... Worrying, <laughs> very, very worrying. Um, I, I hope that's yep. not serious. He has he's had knee
1: injury trouble before, so that that's uh, particularly troublesome. Well, I I, I wish him uh, all the best. I wish wish your Scotland team all the best, and I hope you have all, both of your world class left backs available to you very soon. Uh, we don't know uh, when Liverpool will have Robertson back, although I assume it wasn't quite as bad with Tierney. But I would also argue that. Liverpool have lots of other attacking options that maybe maybe are less of a blow than uh, Tierney was for Arsenal because Tierney was so, I think, important for what Arsenal were trying to do defensively, uh, yeah. especially on that left-hand side, trying to limit Trent Alexander-Arnold. And I do think him having to be substituted does go a long way towards explaining how Liverpool start to find the difference in this game. I also think... Danny Ceballos, the aforementioned, is a, is a big part of it as well. Uh, and this is where I like. So a lot of the commentary I've seen, a lot of the analysis I've seen has been about uh, Ceballos being constantly told by Arteta, like, you've got to close, you've got to get closer, you've got to stay tighter, specifically to Tiago, who I felt like in the first half was staying deeper, staying like further back, more central, and trying to pull Ceballos out. And so Ceballos yeah. would have to close down that distance. But a lot of the time, then you have Tiago then looking for long balls over the top, But Arsenal are sort of set up to deal with that. And I thought, even though Thiago kept finding openings and kept getting on the ball, I didn't think he was doing that much. I thought it necessitated Firmino dropping in so that even when they would combine, there's then nobody ahead of them. You don't have any attackers sort of stretching the back line for Arsenal. And you can't really create that much. In the second half, what I saw was Thiago, anytime Firmino would drop in, Thiago would go forward into that right-hand gap. And that really pinned back Danny Ceballos, but also... Gave Liverpool just more numbers in and around the box. And I think it started to show there that once you get Tiago further forward on the ball, it's going to create problems. I think once you have Trent Alexander-Arnold at full steam trying to prove something, that's also going to make a difference. And I thought the two of them really stood out in this game. Maybe Trent Alexander-Arnold the most, especially given what happened uh, for him with the England national team not getting called up, his spot being in question, that feels a little bit ridiculous to me. I understand why, because Gareth Southgate's concerned about the defensive aspect of things, but I thought this game really showed you what Trent Alexander-Arnold brings both to England and certainly to this Liverpool team. Yeah, it's ridiculous that he's he wasn't in the, the last England squad. He is
2: the, the best right back, I think, in the Premier League. Possibly, maybe even in Europe, although comp- competition is a little stiffer there. But um, only Phillips and Thiago had more touches than Alexander Arnold. He he uh, made four key passes, two tackles, three interceptions, and and put a, uh, created the opener with a, a brilliant assist. And then Jota's second goal comes from him winning the the ball high up the pitch. I mean, we've we've spoken on this pod a bit about how he's had a really poor season. There's absolutely no denying that, Trent Alexander-Arnold, he's, he, his standards have have slipped. And the way this was shaped with the narrative was this was Alexander-Arnold uh, hitting back at mm-hmm. uh, Gareth Southgate. I wonder how much of it was down to the fact he's had two weeks to rest. Yes. And yes. so this was so much more energetic <laughs> from him. And you contrast it to Robertson, who I don't think had a poor game, but wasn't anywhere close to as as sharp and as energetic. And he's played three international games in the last two weeks. That's maybe why. Alexander-Arnold has uh, not. And so you get a much more energetic performance from him. That's
1: what I saw from his performance, was this is a guy who's had a bit of rest. Yeah, you know when like your phone is under 10% battery and you're sort of like charging it intermittently, but then you have to use it. And so it's sort of like it never really gets above that 20%, even if you're charging it off and on the entire day. That's what I feel like his season has been, Alexander Arnold. And then he finally got a period where it was just like, nope, phone is being charged for a couple hours. He's back at 100% battery. And now you see how much more effective he is when he's operating at, let's say, 90% instead of 20%. But I'm with you that I thought we saw... I didn't see it as much of a like, oh, this is the response. This is him telling Southgate, you don't know what you're doing. I saw it more of like, no, it's just a rested player who's very good, playing very, very well. Yeah, but you can't deny the people the narrative. (laughs) No, I I won't. You can never do that. (laughs) I, I won't. I will talk about a few of the goals. You mentioned it already, but that third goal was the one that it just felt like, oh right, this is what Liverpool do. Because it is it is Arsenal at this point being a little bit sloppy playing out. I think it's Gabriel trying uh, to play for Cedric, who subbed on for Tierney at this point. Uh, and it's Trent Alexander-Arnold reads it really well. He steps and intercepts but his interception is a pass forward and I think it goes to Salah who then opens up his hips as the ball is coming in so that his first touch even though it should have been probably like four touches required his first touch is after turning his hips a pass forward which is impressive Mane his one touch on this one is to sort of pull it backwards to set himself up for the shot but obviously Jota is there already for his first touch to be the shot on goal so in that quick transition from Liverpool winning the ball back. It's four players involved. It's four touches on the ball total, and it's a goal. That was the sort of ruthless counter-pressing I've come to expect from Liverpool, and that's why that goal stood out to me uh, and was probably one of my favourites on the weekend. Graham, what about you? Were there goals that you particularly enjoyed in this one? In um, this
2: one, yeah, that that the third goal I think you're totally spot on was uh, much more like... Liverpool. And I just think Mm -hmm. in in, in general, the penny seems to have dropped with Klopp that maybe even in the face of injuries don't mess too much with the structure. I think in hindsight, and look, I was wrong on this. I made an argument uh, earlier in the season that I I thought Fabinho's best position actually might be at centre-back. And while individually, I can perhaps still argue that because he's more eye-catching as a centre-back. It's very, very clear now he is so much more important to Liverpool as a central midfielder. Um, And so I think Klopp now knows, even if he has to use someone like uh, Nathaniel Phillips, Nat Phillips at at, at centre-back, who is individually maybe not up to this standard, you play him there because having Fabinho on centre midfield is, is, is too important. Um, there is actually a little bit of a partnership starting to develop. I know I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but no, between Phillips and Ozan Quebec, mm-hmm. which I thought was one of the the most encouraging things of this game. I think they've kept three clean sheets in a row, which is the first time since February 2020 that Liverpool have managed to do that. Quebec, uh, who had a little bit of a rough start uh, for Liverpool, just seems a lot more composed now and... We're talk- we've spoken a lot about narrative in this podcast so far, but one of the most infuriating ones with his signing was this idea that because he came from the bottom team of the Bundesliga, that he wasn't going to be any good. Yeah, <laughs> um, As if football works that way, that every team in a relegation zone has no good players. Um, so yeah, I- I'm pleased to see him <laughs> uh, doing well. And I think the-, the-, the sense is that Liverpool are probably going to keep hold of him. And I think that's the right decision because you can quite clearly see his potential in
1: the performances he's putting in now. Kamak was never one that I thought was going to struggle Phillips I thought maybe would and has uh, at times but in this game even when some of his passing wasn't perfect I thought a lot of it was sharp enough but sort of risky enough that it still made Arsenal think but it also to me showed what happens when you're thrown into Liverpool's training the intensity Jurgen Klopp giving you that one-on-one instruction I think you are gonna get your angles better trust yourself a bit more with your passing and I thought overall it was a really solid game on the ball and then obviously defensively from Phillips and from Kabak and I think to your point about Klopp maybe just trusting the system and not trying to tinker too much. I would say maybe the opposite is true from Arteta a little bit, that we saw the vulnerabilities of the system because of the individuals is how I would explain that one, because Tierney does so much in his positioning defensively. This is a thing that I think Michael Cox wrote about for The Athletic, that he does a really good job of like tucking inside when need be, but also limiting the effectiveness of Trent Alexander-Arnold down that right-hand side, Arsenal's left. When Tierney comes out, then you have Cedric, who is fine, but not as good in that regard. He's also maybe not quite as, as, I don't know, like reactive to the situation or as on top of the situation. I think one of the goals comes from him trying to make a play on the ball, and Alexander-Arnold just beats him to it. I think Aubameyang on that left side isn't going to offer you the defensive cover that you might like. We've already talked about Ceballos getting screamed at a lot. Um, Odegaard being kind of marked out of the game not able to create much because of the kind of numbers around him in midfield. It seemed like a game in which Arteta set up to frustrate Liverpool, be really good defensively, not let Liverpool through. And they did that for the first half, but I never really saw Arsenal, like on the reverse side, have those sustained attacks cause Liverpool, those problems that felt like, oh, this could be anyone's game. To me from about the 20th minute, it felt more like once Liverpool... F- like settle in find a way through and more importantly Arsenal get tired and can't press as much do the running that they've been doing this feels like Liverpool is going to end up getting a goal or two didn't see it being 3-0 but I did see the sort of vulnerabilities in Arsenal on display in that first half D- did you spot anything in particular about Arsenal that you thought was uh problematic in this one
2: yeah I just thought they really struggled to play through uh Liverpool at, at any point in the game and and obviously um I think, I mean, it was a it was a very it was an underwhelming performance from Arsenal. That's that's uh, you can't deny that. I do have some sympathy in that. You know, when when Tierney comes off, it's it's nil nil. They they were also lacking Smith Rowe and uh, Saka, who you probably pick. They're probably the yeah. three best players that Arsenal have had this season. And not only are they the three best players, but just in terms of their role in the structure, are arguably their three most important players. And Arsenal are not good enough to take three players as good as that out of the first team and still uh, play well and get a result um, against a team like Liverpool. So I, I just feel like, particularly with Odegaard, when he first signed in January, there was a lot of talk of how is he, is he going to come in and be the replacement for S- for Smith-Rowe or how, they, how are they going to play together? I actually think the two of them as a, as a pair have become really important to Arsenal with Smith-Rowe playing off the, the left and Odegaard in the centre. And as good a player as Odegaard is, I think once you take Smith-Rowe out of this team, he just starts to look a little bit lost. And he was he was certainly uh, he was struggling to get on the ball in this game. It, when he did get on the ball, there were a lack of options in front of him. He found the Liverpool high press difficult to deal with. And I just feel like maybe because he didn't have his mate alongside him on one side and he didn't have Sack on the other side as a bit of an outlet, that was the, uh, the problem for Odegaard. So... It, almost every aspect of this performance from like, Arsenal was um, below par, but I can see reasons as to why that was the case.
1: Thank you for bringing up the injuries. Kind of forgot about that. Yeah, anytime you don't have soccer, I think you're going to run into some uh, problems. So maybe not that much gloom and doom then for Arsenal, though I'm sure they're not uh, loving this result. They remain, uh, they are now in 10th. Liverpool in sixth, uh, two points behind Chelsea in fourth. So we we do seem to have that that top four race that we always Get that then the English press will bill as why the Premier League is so much more exciting than every other league because we have a race for the top four. There you go. That's that's what we're looking for, Graham. Anything else from England before we move to the continent?
2: Um, just a point on Arsenal. I'm, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit concerned by their slipping standards. This could be a podcast in its in its own right, so I'll keep it short. Maybe it will be. <laughs> yeah, um, they were title winners. Not well, I guess quite a long a, a while ago now, but they were title winners in the Premier League era. Then they were top four regulars. Now they're ninth in mm-hmm. the table. I don't really get a sense that there's much sort of panic around their situation, and I I'm, I
1: question that a little bit. That, that is, is, is worrying a worrying fair me. statement. That's weird. You're right. I hadn't really thought about it like that. But you're totally like aside from troops, whom I'm, I'm sure is is yelling constantly, like <laughs> it it doesn't feel like such a like this is. Ridiculous! The way it would be if when Chelsea fall to that position, or yeah. if Liverpool were down in that position,
2: or even last night, and Manchester United win, they they beat Brighton and stay second mm-hmm. in the Premier League, and it felt like there was mo- there was still more discussion about yes. Solskjaer and United and the mm-hmm. way they're going than Arsenal, who are ninth in the table and had just been beaten
1: three 0 at home by Liverpool. It's strange to me. So, like, I, I don't mean for this to be a hack question, but uh, if it comes off that way, so be it. Do you think is that is that Arteta? Is that Arteta and the relationship to Guardiola and his relationship to Arsenal is that sort of like he is a uh, like he this is silly but he just he looks smarter to me. He looks more yeah. tactically astute and so it always feels like oh he's working towards something. There's something going on there. Where Solskjaer gives you this vibe, at least he gives me this vibe of like he's this avuncular uncle who's like yeah, it's all a good time. We're figuring it out. It's just like you don't seem As astute as that guy, even though that guy is what uh, eighteen points behind you in the table. (laughs) Like I don't, I think it's Arteta and how sort of uh, like reverential the coverage has been of him. Yeah, and I don't want to totally write him off just yet because I
2: I I do think there have been some Mm -hmm. signs of encouragement. But I think Arteta is proof of just how much weight um, we give to how a manager looks, how they speak, Mm -hmm. just how they carry themselves. He Arteta looks like a successful manager so in the minds of a, a lot of people he is a successful manager even though I, I don't think I mean his record at this point is is worse than Unai Emery's which is quite
1: damning um, Wow. so yeah it, it, there's a there's a paradox there. I think he just proves George Costanza's long-held theory that men with thick hair uh, get <laughs> more favorable treatment uh, and there it is so As long as Arteta keeps that hairline, he should be okay. But if he doesn't, we'll be here to talk about it. We'll also be here to talk about uh, some French football, some German football in just a second. First, another break to hear from today's sponsors. All right, Graham, let's talk France, where we thought we were going to have the sort of norm restored, or at least I did. It felt to me like, yes, Lille are on top, PSG, uh, or PSG, they've got the money, they've got Pochettino now, they're going to find a way to get the results, but in the end, they do not. PSG losing this one, one kneel, uh, one nil to Lille, wow, I rhymed <laughs> that one, uh, Jonathan David with the deflected, Goal. Uh, PSG still have not won when conceding first. I learned that uh, from the commentators in this one. Uh, in the seven games where they have conceded first so far in the league, one draw, six losses. And again, a maybe hacky question, though I don't mean for it to be. Do you think, does that speak in your mind to a lack of that kind of fight mentality that we don't always love to talk about? Or is it more indicative of a lack of sort of secondary ideas when your primary plan? doesn't quite work essentially I find PSG to be a conundrum I find Neymar to be a conundrum and I kind of want to explore that a little bit more with this conversation obviously we're going to praise Lille in a little bit but PSG losing and looking pretty ineffective at times really stood out to me from this game
2: yeah someone on uh on Twitter I wish I could remember who it was but someone on Twitter said that this was quite a spursy performance by PSG yes which I thought, oh, geez, <laughs> there's something in that. <laughs> Maybe yep. it wasn't Tottenham all along. Maybe oh, it was boy. Pochettino. Uh, oh no! Oh no! <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a. It was a peculiar performance from PSG. And to be honest, their whole season has been bizarre, right? Utterly, yeah. utterly bizarre. Because I don't know whether it's just me, but in the Champions League. It feels like PSG, I know they had that rough start with with Manetted and Leipzig in Leipzig in the group, but since Tuchel's left, that there, there is a sense with you know, seeing off Barcelona relatively easily in, in the last sixteen. It feels like maybe this actually could be their year. I know they say that every season, but it feels like they've come they've they've overcome a few mental barriers in the Champions League. So they're looking in pretty good shape there. But in League 1... Every time they seem to be on the brink of, I mean, when they when they uh, when they went top of the table before the international break, you think, well, that's it. It was fun while it lasted, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're going to stretch their legs now. And uh, to to suffer a a, a result like this and a performance like this, I mean, Lille are, Lille are a good team, you know, they're good, a good a good group of uh, excellent young players. Um, I think I heard Rory Smith say that Leel. Rather ambitiously, believe they have one billion euros worth of uh, of talent in their squad. Which, yeah, that's interesting. A little bit uh, kind of Austin Powers there—one uh, billion euros uh, worth of <laughs> worth of talent. <laughs> <laughs> They've just plucked a number out of nowhere there. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, they they the, the goal came against the, the the run of play. They didn't touch the ball much in the first twenty minutes. Then Jordan David scores. But I, I think the the way they the thing that struck me about the way that they, they countered against uh, um, or defended against PSG's quality is they they let a lot of teams when they play PSG, they try and stop them run. And once a player gets mm-hmm. past a, a defender, then obviously they've got 30 yards to run into and that's where they do damage. Lille let PSG run. So Mbappe and Neymar, there's a lot of times when they're driving forward into the half, but what Lille did was almost jockey them with two or three mm-hmm. players alongside them. And just the number of times that those two players, Mbappe and Neymar, crowded off the out of off the ball um, was you know was, was a number of times and and I think that was key to the way that they they got this result
1: that's a really good point because what I kept noticing is Neymar and Mbappe both getting increasingly frustrated Mbappe ends up getting a yellow Neymar obviously gets a second yellow and the red And I think part of that was because they kept getting knocked around. I kept seeing them sort of go flying at the end of a sequence. And I think you're absolutely right that it's because, and importantly, it was them flying off the ball, but no foul being given. And I think that's the difference. You're right, that... If you're trying to stand them up and stop them and and Mbappe touches that ball past you, if you're the defender, you know you're not going to beat him in a foot race. You're very, not, very unlikely to. So you're going to foul him. You're going to dive in and take yeah. out the legs. You're going to concede a free kick. And here, I think you're right that the jockeying lets them sort of slow Mbappe, slow Neymar down enough because they're there. They've got to deal with that, the defender, but also try to keep hold of the ball that it puts you in a position to then poke that ball away, but also there's a little bit of contact and the player's going to go down. But I think you're totally right. That that worked really well. I thought Leo didn't know that they had the best uh, defensive record in the league coming into this one, 19 goals from 30 games. Now that's 19 goals from 31 games. Um, but you could see why. They just seemed very calm not having the ball. They were sort of content, uh, not even to sit off, but just sort of to trust themselves, to know their positioning, to know their spacing, to be in the right situation, to handle whatever PSG threw at them. And then I thought a thing that we so often see is teams who do the defensive job. I think Arsenal did this. Chelsea, I think, did this to some extent. You could do the defensive job, but if you then cough the ball up or turn it over cheaply, you sort of shoot yourself in the foot. And if you let that other team back in, you're you're the one who is even if you're doing the best defensive job if you pass to the other team and they shoot one time and score that's kind of all she wrote and i thought Leal were really good about playing out it was a lot of very tight one and two touch passing and when psg would get close they were content to sort of hoof it long and hope somebody would run onto it or even not to trust themselves to have that positioning but i thought this was sort of yeah just Lille like doing what i think comes naturally and comes comfortably to them and psg doing the opposite of that, having to find a way to get a result and ultimately failing to do so.
2: Yeah, and, and on, on both sides of the ball, this was a performance from from Leo that not every team could could do. So the, the, we've we mentioned the way they, they were kind of jockeying players. There's a reason a lot of teams don't do that, and that's because you need a high degree of uh, mobility and mm-hmm. physicality, I guess, to stick with Mbappe and Neymar when they're doing that. Uh, but Leo have that through, you know. Uh, I thought Benjamin, uh, Andre, and in the, in the centre yep. Sumari was, was was excellent. Even Renato Sanchez, who maybe wasn't as, as as good as those two, has has those qualities to to help out. And and you mentioned there, you know, they they weren't afraid to to, to kind of stick a ball long, or or as the first goal came from, stick a ball into the channel. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's a a very hard running st- style of, style of soccer. And as I say, not every team. Could do that. I, w- I wanted to ask you about uh, about Neymar. What did what did you think mm. of his performance here?
1: Confused, because I I think I so I, I didn't watch this game live. I knew he got the red card, and I knew that they lost this game. So I think it's easy to then approach it with like, oh, I'm sure he had a bad game, and it was a, I I thought it was going to be a frustration moment in the end that got him the card, and I guess it was. But I think it was one of those games where you watch and you realize what it is to be Neymar is as soon as you get the ball, someone's going to kick you. Someone's going to foul you. Someone's going to be physically on you. I think he's the most fouled player for the team and maybe in the entirety of the league, both in terms of fouls per game, but overall total number of fouls suffered. And so I thought that this was like, it, it was a game where if you don't like Neymar, you came away from this with all of the further justification for not liking Neymar. But I think I saw aspects of why he is such a good player, how he's able to create even with two people on him, even with getting the fouls, even a little bit of gamesmanship. Like there's one, I think, in the first half when he plays the pass while on a run. And then realizes he's overhit the ball and has kind of gotten contact from, I think it was Andre. And so then he goes down and like there was contact. It's not given Andre gets in his face. It leads to a little bit of a scuffle. But like even that gamesmanship to know like, oh, I'm going to play this ball. Oh, I overhit this ball. Well, I can still sell the foul. Like, again, it's a reason to not like him if you don't like him. To me, it shows his intelligence and his ability to have multiple different reads on a sequence in one second. So I saw positives from him, but then you see the frustration of trying to do a little bit too much. His shooting was pretty poor. Uh, It has been an injury plagued season. And then obviously the red card compounds that further. Yeah. I think, I think your, your your
2: assessment is, is pretty much mine as well It's the duality of Neymar (laughs) where some of his play, you think, Oh, he's taken upon himself to make something happen. But then the flip side of that is, he, you're being too selfish on the ball there. You're trying too much, mm-hmm. too hard to make something happen, and then of course he caps it off by by being sent off at the end. So you've got the the kind of classic uh, Neymar show of, of of petulance. But it should over the the final few weeks of the season, it should be a boost to have him back in the side. I mean, how can it not to to have? I was looking through his scoring record for PSG, um, which is quite incredible and kind of uh-huh. goes against the idea <laughs> that he has been a failure um, for them. I think he's got, here it is, yeah, in my notes, 83 goals and 47 assists
1: in 105 games for PSG. That's not bad. (laughs) It's not, but I think where the, like, the failure narrative, such as it is, and it's probably unfair, but, like, to me, it comes about because this PSG team, with the money they have, there's almost an expectation that you will win the title. And to, to not be winning the title is itself a a talking point maybe less so this season because they're still in the champions league i think if they'd already been knocked out then this is seen as like a total failure this season has gone horrifically wrong and that's where i get confused about neymar because he's he's at barcelona he's winning the treble he's part of msn he's is he the heir apparent to the messi ronaldo conversation and then he moves to psg where the kind of standard is you have to win the league title and we really want to win the champions league so they keep winning the league title which is sort of the expected norm they don't win the champions league and meanwhile we have the stories of him going back to brazil for for parties and birthdays and getting uh, uh fees for applauding the fans and for missing a ton of games and and that's where i think I, I get confused by him at psg because he scores goals they win domestic titles but i still fundamentally think like it's not as good of a like it's just a it's still like an unsuccessful time in my mind, which is maybe unfair. It's probably unfair, but I can't shake that feeling that like, yeah, they still have won the Champions League. Yeah, they won the domestic title, but like, yeah, so what? So is the way to sum that up then that Neymar
2: hasn't been a failure as a PSG player, but Project Neymar
1: has so far been a failure for PSG? Yes, that is very well said. That is probably what it is. Yeah, that he is individually still the Neymar that we know, it's just, yeah, the overall experience of what he was supposed to be and what that team was therefore supposed to be hasn't quite materialized in my mind. Yeah, quite similar to All Ronaldo right. at Juventus then, I guess. It's- that is a fair comparison to draw. Although, I guess Neymar younger, we would have expected a little bit more. But yeah. we'll see. We'll see how the rest of this season plays out. For Lille, I wanted to mention really quickly just that I thought this was, we talked about the defensive side, I thought their attack was was efficient and effective but I, I the thought the thing that i thought was most interested this goal is obviously scored by jonathan david who's then subbed off due to injury uh, and that injury occurs in the lead-up to this goal he's taken down in transition by adri Gana gay gay gets the yellow card play quickly restarted uh leo able to play it down the channel as you said and then it's a centering pass for jonathan david who is wide open at the top of the box for the cutback finish as well albeit with the deflection but the thing that i thought was like sort of ironically interesting is that the reason why I think he's so open is Marquinhos is tracking him Marquinhos is trying to keep pace with the line with where the ball is so he is hustling all the way back but I think also assumes that Jonathan David is going to be making that same driving run with him and in actuality Jonathan David is already clearly still suffering from that injury is maybe not going to be able to continue and so he is running with a limp and that limp makes him go more slowly. So I watched it assuming that it was going to be like, oh, he holds his run and then arrives late for the finish. It's mostly like he holds his run because he cannot run, but then is still able to score a goal. So it's a credit to him that, I guess, with one leg, he's still able yeah. to get on the end of a pass and uh, get the winner against PSG. Yeah, a tactical injury. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, we will have uh, more from PSG this week. They've got Bayern Munich in the Champions League. I have no idea what to expect from that game. We're going to talk about Bayern Munich uh, in just a moment, but PSG could win that game 4-0. They could lose that game 4-0 and I sort sort of wouldn't be surprised either way. Do you have any expectations for that upcoming game, Graham? Pretty much exactly. <laughs> the same right. as same as you. I mean, the, I
2: I think I probably would have favored Bayern Munich before Lewandowski. Mm-hmm. As uh, yep. his injury after coming back from the international break is, you know, that changes things a little bit, and we'll probably talk about a little bit about that um, with the the Leipzig game. Fullbacks uh, for PSG. If 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 Bayern Munich can expose them there, kind of like uh, kind of like Leo did for the for the for the first goal here, then I think uh, that still could give. Bayern Munich the the advantage because they have some quite good wide forwards, you might have
1: noticed, who uh, could (laughs) exploit that space. So that could be a deciding factor for me. All right, well, let's talk about Leipzig Bayern Munich in just a second. The final thing, really quickly, we've talked about it a couple of times, but haven't actually talked about it. The red card to Neymar, uh, I just wanted to say very quickly that I watched that a little bit like the Zapruder film, that sequence over and over and over again, trying to figure out what happened. Because on first viewing, Neymar's played into the channel. Uh, he loses his footing, is how I'm going to say on the first viewing. He goes down, he gets back up. It's a 50 50 with Jallo. Uh, I, and I saw it as Neymar goes in really hard on Jallo. Jallo is uh, big and strong and sort of doesn't really react to that one. Ball goes out of bounds, and then Neymar gets mad, shoves Jallo, Jallo goes down, yellow card to Neymar. Watching it again, I think Neymar goes down because he gets kicked by Jallo. There's a little bit of just like a, a foot left in and that's what makes him go over. And I think that's probably where the frustration, if if not already building throughout the game, I think that's where it boils over is that feeling of like, oh, I finally get a little bit of time and space and you still sweep my leg. And so then he goes for it. So it's another one where it feels like in the moment, oh, it's petulance. It's Neymar letting the moment get the best of him. And it probably is. I'm not trying to say it's not. But I also do think it's it's another one that, in my mind, makes him a little bit more of a sympathetic character just because it is if you get kicked 15 times in a game and you only get called for five of those or the opposition only gets called for five of those. I like eventually it's going to add up. And when you're down one nail in the closing minutes, I think maybe eventually it will boil over. So that's my understanding of the name, our red card. I just wanted to mention that. Any thoughts on that red card or anything else about this game, Graham? You watched that incident much closer than <laughs> I did.
0: <laughs>
2: because, I mean, not that I doubt you in any way, yeah. but that, that I, I just saw that. Oh, that's a classic uh, Neymar. Yeah. Neymar stoppage time red card. I totally agree. I, I watched Neymar much more. Um, for Barcelona then I uh, not that I haven't watched mm-hmm. them many times for PSG but I, I watch them every week for Barcelona just through my job and and I always cut him a little bit more slack because he gets kicked up and down that pitch for yep. 90 minutes so um yeah yep. I can I can uh, understand if if he uh, if that was a result of uh, a similar sort of uh, kicking against Lille on uh, at the weekend
1: yeah, I would say the or- original yellow for the hands to the face on Andre that maybe could have been a red if it had been a little bit more aggressive and if the referee had wanted to stamp the authority down a little bit. That's the one where I'm a bit more like, come on, man. Like, you didn't need to do that. And I think that was after he was being accused of diving and Neymar got mad. So that one I have less sympathy for than the uh, the second one. But we'll see how PSG respond in the Champions League this week against, as we said, Bayern Munich, who did go on the road uh, at Leipzig and got the 1-0 win. I think my favorite statistic from this one, uh, in the 86th minute, the expected goals tally was uh, 0. 0.6 for Leipzig versus 0. 0.6 for Bayern Munich. But of course, Bayern Munich were up 1-0, which feels like a very Bayern Munich thing, both for this season and beyond. <laughs> Just that even when it seems equal, inevitably Bayern get the advantage. Yeah. I mean, th- this was...
2: I I think it's fair to say. I mean, I to be perfectly honest, I don't think there's been a real title race in the Bundesliga. Just a just a feeling. I know they've been close on points. I know if yep. Leipzig Leipzig had won this, um, you know that it would have been neck and neck. But for a long time, I've just had a feeling there's not really a title race in the Bundesliga. But yep. I think this weekend was the weekend where Bayern Munich pretty much put their hands on the trophy. They're not going to get caught now. Um, if they're going away to to Leipzig. Second place in the table, without their best player and top goal scorer, yep. and winning one 0 it's done.
1: Yep, and they're what? What's uh, you had Boateng suspended, Davies suspended, Lewandowski out, as you said. Taliso, Douglas Costa also all out. So you're missing a ton of players, and they still get that result. I'm with you, Graham, that I think they're they will win the title. But I kind of have always felt that this season, because to some extent, it feels like until somebody. I always go with like the Drago analogy from Rocky four of like until somebody cuts them and shows that Bayern (laughs) Munich are mortal, like they're not a machine. They can bleed like until that happens. I just think they're going to keep winning. And that's what this felt like to me was Leipzig maybe having an opportunity to show that Bayern Munich are composed of mortals and instead Bayern Munich somehow finding a way to win. It does feel like they're not going to have a massive downturn in form Bayern until they get something fundamentally wrong. They got it wrong with Kovac, but they made that change. Flick comes in, and now all is well. But uh, unless they like completely stop investing and just assume that they're always going to be dominant and eventually the wheels fall off, like, yeah, I don't, I don't know how Bayern Munich don't just continue to win the title every year because even with the injuries they've had and with some of the changes this season, for them to still be top of the table and and with everything else going on, I just, I kind of am not surprised, but simultaneously surprised.
2: Yeah, you could you could make the argument that there's a transition coming at the end of this season. Obviously, with Alaba and Boateng, mm-hmm. he he's still leaving, isn't he? Like he's not. I've not missed him he's signing saying, a new contract or anything. Yeah. So he's the two central, you know, first choice central defenders leaving at the end of the season, and then obviously Dortmund have some decent young players. You could say so. There's mm-hmm. there's there's an argument there, but. But I mean, they've already secured uh, Uwe Meccano, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, arguably the best uh, central defender in the Bundesliga right now. And there's a question over, well, Erling Haaland's agent is flying all over Europe, uh, touting Dortmund's best player. So it feels like there's just more of the same coming next season yeah which
1: as Dortmund fall out of the Champions League spots and look uncertain for like the like the near future obviously Marco Rosa already confirmed but if he's confirmed to come into a club who are not in the Champions League it's gonna be a tough one it's gonna be a tough one for keeping early Holland and for the for the recruitment uh yeah so it seems like Bayern Munich are are, are gonna be okay they're gonna find a way to weather this storm uh such as it is uh but I did then want to ask you Graham about this game in particular because I did see Bayern Munich doing the things that Bayern do being very good on the ball having that sort of like next level belief that they'll find a way to get through they'll find a way to get a result obviously having some still very strong performers i would say Kimmich and Goretzka stood out to me yeah but i also thought it wasn't an impenetrable bayern an impenetrable bayern excuse me like there were still opportunities for leipzig they did find a way through especially in the second half i thought leipzig were more aggressive put themselves in better situations and yet still couldn't take their chances all of that is the preamble to ask you, did you feel like the end result of this one was Bayern being good on defense or Leipzig failing to take the chances when they had them? Um, I am, despite despite everything I've
2: just said about Bayern Munich mm-hmm. being untouchable pretty much, I'm leaning more towards the latter just because I, I felt like two chances in particular for, it would have been for Sibitzer and Dani mm-hmm. Olmo, yeah. Um, in the second chan, in the second half, they they probably, I mean, they, at least they should have uh, tested Manuel Neuer and tested out that that goal net which uh, wasn't uh, properly <laughs> installed yeah. before kickoff. Um, <laughs> I, I that. love that. I love. I loved Manuel Neuer trying to tie it tie it up with his with his towel. Uh, And trying to convince the referee that that was – it made me question more about Neuer as a person. Like, is he the sort of guy who keeps the spare tire on his car because, hey, the car still moves? (laughs) 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 Or, like, does he use instant coffee in a filter coffee machine because, hey, at least it's brown and, like, you know, it sort of works? Um, So,
1: yeah – yeah, I think it's a fair question to ask. I also just love that he tied it on there and then when the uh when the AR was like, "No, that's not going to work." He was like, "All right, well then you untie it. I'll hold your flag." <laughs> like he was not he was not trying to to solve any more problems after that. He gave his solution, <laughs> it was rejected, and then he was a little bit petty, I think.
2: Yeah. But um <laughs> Leipzig should have they were really flat in the fir- in in the, in the first yeah. half. They were they, they were they were poor, and second half was a lot better. I think Nagelsmann clearly had something to say to them. At halftime, um, but they just lack that that killer instinct, Leipzig, yeah. which is yeah. the, which is is what Bayern Munich have more than I would say any other team in European soccer at this moment. Is that killer instinct and that, as you you referenced earlier, that kind of belief that they will get that goal even when their main man and top goalscorer is is missing. You know, Leon Goretzka steps up with a a, a brilliant finish,
1: um, but that's something that Leipzig are lacking. Yeah, I I think they are. I think the, the mere fact that they started uh, Forsberg as the false nine in this one uh, maybe shows that they're still lacking a Timo Werner replacement, and I think that that definitely didn't help them. I thought, I don't think this is just my American glasses, but I thought uh, Tyler Adams had a pretty good game, especially in the second half. I thought he was kind of doing I'm going to assume exactly what been asked of him it was a lot of running it was a lot of high pressing it was a lot of trying to be in multiple places at once uh, the goal I think he gets a little bit posterized because he's basically trying to track Goretzka and then also has to follow Thomas Muller because Sabitzer switches off so he does get the the cut and him kind of falling out of bounds is a little bit embarrassing uh, and then the idea that he left Goretzka to go Mark Muller who then cuts past Adams to square to Goretzka to get the goal. Doesn't look great, but I think that he is covering for Sabitzer and trying to mark two players at once. I give him a little bit of sympathy.
2: Yeah, I, I that was actually one of my questions about the goal was the way the camera angle is. You can't really mm-hmm. see where Goretzka's come from at least on on, yeah. on the highlights when I tried to watch it back and and so I, I did wonder what the process had been for Goretzka to get that amount of space inside the in, inside the box
1: so I can explain it to you uh, because I, I I was equally confused because suddenly it's a free kick it's taken down the right hand side it then goes back to Kimmich who took the free kick and then he has this long ball Played over the top to Thomas Muller, who has suddenly found this like 20 yards of space unmarked. And it's like, how are we letting Thomas Muller run unmarked through the middle of the field? And the answer is that when the free kick is initially put back into play, uh, you have Goretzka sort of midway between where the kick is being taken around midfield and the top of the box. He has Tyler Adams near him. Then you have Thomas Muller walking all the way back towards the ball and Sabitzer follows him. When the, ball, when the free kick is taken wide, Bayern have numbers over there. Sula's over there. I think Pavar is over there. And they're moving the ball around, and Sabitzer sort of drifts over to provide another option to provide some cover. So when it goes back to Kimmich, Muller, who had dropped all the way to Kimmich, has now turned and run forward. Sabitzer is still standing closer to midfield than anything else. So now Muller is unmarked, and I think Tyler Adams spots that. Goretzka has remained where he is, so Tyler Adams tries to make that run across to get to Thomas Muller in time but because he doesn't because Thomas Muller cuts back on him no one else has filled in for uh uh Tyler Adams in terms of and Goretzka and that's why Goretzka is sort of able to waltz into the box and finish pretty comfortably with nobody around him. that's my overall analysis of that play well I am now a wiser person for that (laughs) thank you um what, so while I'm saying I have sympathy for Tyler Adams, I will also apologize to Nicholas Sula, who previously I have made fun of for playing right back for Bayern Munich, uh, talking about it. Because I think it's just because he's so big, <laughs> he's six foot whatever, he's 220 pounds, I think he's six foot four maybe. But he just seems like this huge guy who's a little bit un- ungainly. So like when you see him run, he doesn't seem like he's going to be that fast. Where it stood out to me was Bayern have a corner in the first half Leipzig play it out really effectively. They have this uh, quick counter. I think it's played into Nkunku, who ends up getting fouled by Sula, and it's a free kick. So it's not the best defensive work until I realized that Sula is the player that Bayern kept back to defend the corner. And normally that's your like the player that isn't your biggest aerial threat or is your fastest player who can kind of cover the ground to deal with any counter opportunities then doing some research, I learned that Nicholas Sula was, in fact, the fastest player on the pitch yesterday. So did not know he was that quick at 34.5 kilometers per hour. Did not know that Eric Chupamotang could be such a good sort of target hold-up player for Bayern Munich. I thought he had a pretty good game overall as well. So two players who I think I've kind of dismissed or disparaged, I would apologize to. Nicholas. I apologize. Eric, I apologize. I-, I am shocked that Sula was the fastest right? player on the pitch. I
2: feel like right. that's, are we sure that's not a glitch in the speed gun?
1: <laughs> right, <laughs> it seems like it is, even when that's like 2018 19, I asked Manuel Veth this, uh, and he was like, yeah, it's a, it's a known thing, just nobody knows it because he's so big. But I think in the 2018-2019 season, he was the fastest player in the Bundesliga, which is equally insane to me, but that is yeah, he hits
2: 38 kilometers per, uh, per hour at that point. This is this is up there with finding out that Luke
1: Shaw is, uh, is six foot one, right. or whoever he is, <laughs> uh, mind-breaking statistics we're learning this season. Uh, if, if if we know Bayern Munich are going to win the title every year, we have to find entertainment where we can, <laughs> and I guess players being taller and faster uh, is where we'll find it. Yeah. And I, I also found that
2: and not that this wasn't an entertaining game, but I found myself once I was hundred percent sure that Bayern were gonna win this one, mm-hmm. just assessing um the the replacement of the seats at Red Bull Arena in Leipzig oh. and how those seat pattern that seat pattern they have has been irrationally irritating to me for a number of years because they are they are blue <laughs> and obviously uh Arby's Leipzig play in red and that is very irritating to me also the pattern of the seats is very uh i don't know if you've ever noticed this so i might this is i have not and now i have to look it's it up. kind of like a wave it's like a it's like a blue but then a lighter blue wave around the stadium uh-huh. um which is very sort of group stage match at the olympics oh, yeah. vibe, uh, going uh yes on. it is uh, and it just it irrationally annoys me that it's blue but, Wait, and have, so have they finally changed well, it, or they've behind just behind, for one, the double behind double one, double. one of the goals that they're stripped? They've stripped out all the seats, ah. um, obviously given an opportunity by the pandemic. So please be red, red seats, please, or white. White will do. White, white is fine. Just not blue
1: you you're not wrong in looking at this that it does have the familiar symptoms of the like generic fifa stadium yeah. uh for for world cup or olympics or something well, like that that's yeah, because they don't have the warning track luckily yeah
2: that's ex- as far as i'm aware that's exactly what it was for the 2006 world cup so ah, perfect. Uh, RB Leipzig, little cloudy my history there. Even they, they, either they didn't exist at that point, or they were, you know, an embryonic stage. And so the stadium wasn't built for them. It was built for the 2006 World Cup, which is why it's given a very generic seat pattern. But it needs to change now. Interesting.
1: I will say nothing. While while we're on this random topic, uh, I I do have a question for you. I thought about this this weekend, actually, though. Like when it comes to seat colors, do you prefer that they be sort of uniform and reflective of the the home team's dominant colors, like like should they be red, or I think it's Fortuna Dusseldorf that always stands out of my mind. Do you like the just completely multicolored approach, especially Tasha no. I think did the same thing where like red, yellow, green blue, they're all in there in various degrees in various patterns nope i don't like that that's and i can't i can't <laughs> articulate why it it feels like
2: it, well, the idea is it's supposed to look full when it when it's not isn't it uh, like okay. it's supposed to look like people, but it doesn't it doesn't at all. There's another it's team that. there's another team that did that quite recently and I'm 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 not in favor of it yeah you you, you need like to it. go with the colors of the team I think
1: it also requires you to have a very state of the art stadium because if you don't, it absolutely looks like you you just found of like different allotments of various numbers yeah. of seats and you threw them together to make it fit.
2: Yeah, well, in, in Scotland, uh, Livingston uh, play in a stadium where they haven't changed the the seats since they built it about thirty years Ooh, ago, and each that's comfortable. each uh, each section of seating is a slightly different uh, shade of yellow. <laughs> Livingston do play in <laughs> yellow, so at least it's the colors of the team, but it's all different 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 colors when wait so when do you think roughly those seats were first put in um so almondvale would have been built
1: in the like early 90s i think okay so okay all right so not that like i was gonna ask like we have a theater here in richmond that has been here since like the 1800s (laughs) and it's one of those where like they haven't they've updated the seats but they've kept the number of seats so you go in there and you sit down and you're just instantly like knees all the way up uh, against the back of the seat in front of you, and you just remember how small people used to be. And I sort of get angry at earlier humans for not being bigger. So I was wondering if you had that same dilemma here. It doesn't sound like it, though.
2: No, this is just uh, cheapskate owners not (laughs) renewing their their seats every few years and the aesthetics Uh, suffering for it.
1: (laughs) This is obviously where we thought this show was going to go. Really quickly, final thing. We've talked about things Graham doesn't like in terms of uh, random seat patterns and teams being in the stadiums with the wrong colored seats. I do want to ask about things Graham did like from this weekend. Last thing, let's talk about our sort of team of the week. Graham, I, I turn it to you. Uh, I went with a with like a 4-3-3 slash 4-2-3-1 okay. uh, roughly shape. W- what about yourself? Right,
2: so I went with a 4-4-2, but in like midfield it. I'm not entirely sure my <laughs> my structure is is going to oh, win many it. games. It's quite a sort of fantasy football-esque. It's not too bad, but there's one, there's uh, one, there's one player that's Perhaps at possession,
1: <laughs> it's like it's like an, an all-star game where yeah. you've got to get everybody in there. So yeah. your center, central attacking midfielder is now a center back. Is that what we're gonna get? Yes. Yeah. So, Perfect. So do you want me to All run right. through? Do, well, how yeah. are we gonna do this? We're gonna do this. Um, why don't you? Why don't you give me like your position by position? I will tell you what I had. Uh, we can go from there. So what about in goal? Who's your starting goalkeeper?
2: Yep. Yeah. So my goalkeeper was Yano Black, who saved a penalty made a number of saves against Sevilla. They still lost the game, Atleti, but it would have been uh, it would have been a heavier defeat had it not been for him. And actually, it's the second successive match that he has saved the penalty for Atleti. So he's getting a little bit of credit
1: for two matches. Ooh, I, I like this, because Graham has gone with the uh, the extra work. I have been lazy and just gone with the players that we've talked about or watched from the games that we've talked about here. So I like it. We're going to get a, a greater variety from Graham. But I had... Uh, either Neuer or Mignon for this one. I thought Mignon was, oh, was yep, very yep. good for Lille. I thought he commanded his box. So I, I had uh, Mignon in there, but I like uh, Jano Oblak as well. I always like Jano Oblak. What about your back line, Graham?
2: So um, left back, we'll start off with left back, which, which mm. I think we both m- might have struggled a little bit. So I went Correct. with quite an obvious one. Um, I went from Marcos Acuna, who scored the winner for Sevilla against Atleti. He was he was good Ooh. and, uh, I like as I say, that. scored a goal. So, plus points always a positive positive. and what about your center backs Um so for center backs i've gone for um ozan kabak yep and um i struggled with other center back i have to say but just for the fact that keeping a clean sheet against a front line as good as psgs is not easy i've gone for sven botman um and at right back i've gone for alexander arnold who we've obviously spoken about already we have.
1: And yeah, I had a, a decent amount of overlap there. I had Trent Alexander-Arnold as my right back. I had Ozan Kabak as one of my center backs. I thought David Alaba uh, was very good for Bayern. Obviously, he always is. Uh, but I thought he also continued to do the Alaba thing of playing center back, but occasionally just driving through the middle of the field and then being an attacker for a little while. Uh, so I found that really enjoyable. And then just Hamas Miller being uh, redeployed to left back and making it work and helping facilitate sure. attacks. I had Hamas Miller. So uh, three out of my four back line is Liverpool. I am personally offended that you
2: have picked a Liverpool left back that isn't uh Scott. <laughs> I thought
1: I thought that might upset you. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, midfield. Do you want me to put McTominay in my team just to make it better? Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, fine.
2: Uh, <laughs> my midfield four, so I've gone for four and it's a very loose <laughs> loose structure for these four. Uh Pereira for West Brom, uh, as mm-hmm. we've already spoken about, brilliant in that game. Uh, Leon Goretzka against Leipzig, um, he's had a great season as well. Uh, De Bruyne against Leicester mm. City was fantastic and everything he did. And then my slight wild card, who's on the right side of my mid- midfield, despite the fact he primarily plays off the left, is uh, Dimitri Payet, who got two assists Ooh. in Marseille's one over Dijon. Bit of a wild card, but I am pleased to see Dimitri Payet um, doing well and... Not just sulking for
1: once. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I also like that. Yeah, sometimes you got to roll the dice, you got to experiment a little bit, Graham. If if that, if you want to win silverware, you got to be able to uh, take chances. And I feel like Pyatt on the right is taking a chance. Yeah, it's always taking a chance with Dimitri Pyatt, (laughs) no matter where you play him. Uh This is true. I had uh, Kimmich and Goretzka as my two. I thought they were just uh, immense and so solid and a big part of why Bayern have the stability they do. I had honorable mention to Mateo Kovacic. Though Chelsea lost, I thought he was maybe one of the only players who had a, a solid game and didn't. Obviously, give the ball away for shooting opportunities, so that's always a positive. I had Matias Pereira on the left side. I really liked what I saw from Renato Sanchez. I thought he did a good yeah. job defensively, but kept the ball moving and, and I think did what he needed to do. So I had him as my right winger, and I had Ikone as my number 10. Again, I thought he stepping into the attack and being kind of a front two, but then dropping into the midfield for Leal against BSG, I thought he did an excellent job. I basically just had a ton of Lille and West Brom in my team. <laughs> uh, Dionyu was my, my center forward. Which is a, a dream team you might not have envisaged at the start of not this so season. Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> not so much at all yeah. heading into this weekend. I was not expecting my my week at 11 to be primarily Liverpool's backline and then West Brom and, uh, Leo. and Leo players. Yeah, that's yeah. odd.
2: So... My two forwards are not actually two players we've spoken about. I wasn't aware of that I've I've gone Europe wide, man. <laughs> I like it. I like um, it. Um but, but two players that everyone will will know, I think. So so Harry Kane obviously is is, is an obvious I've one heard too. Of yes, you have heard of him. <laughs> and uh Gerard Moreno, who scored a hat trick for Villa Real away to Granada, not an easy game. And this was after he's scored for for Spain in international break. So feel like when you put some respect on his name, even though he might not play for one of the traditional big boys. Graham, how many games are you watching at a weekend? Do you want the serious answer to that?
1: <laughs> kind of? Yeah. I feel like it's going to make me mildly upset so, to hear the number of games. Roughly, probably about 15
2: over Saturday and Sunday, I'd imagine. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how do you do that? Well, I've got, I've got kind of the mothership <laughs> set up in my <laughs> yeah, office where i've got four screens and five if i use one at
1: my ipad as well so yeah but, I think of the Dark Knight thing where he has like the like the six hundred different monitors that all have like the radio frequencies yeah, from all around yeah. Gotham. That's what I'm picturing is your office. Yeah, what what I need to do. Screens. The next step is to bug
2: everyone's phones and which and <laughs> admittedly in the COVID times when COVID times with no fans in the stadium won't be very effective. But when fans are back, you know, bug everyone's phones that go to all yep. the games and I'll have like
1: that that Dark Knight style uh set up. All right. Get Morgan Freeman on it and we can make this happen, Graham. Uh, But until you're able to do that, I appreciate you uh, taking time to talk about just four of the many games that you watched this weekend and for giving me your best 11 from this past weekend. Graham, thank you as always for taking the time to talk to me about all of the many things that happened this past weekend. That is no problem, Taylor. Talk to you next (laughs) time. (laughs) I appreciate that. Listeners, we appreciate you all. And we will talk to you all again very soon.